Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I actually think what the United States has built up over the last seven decades has been really good for this country. It's also been good for a lot of the world. We have, you know, economically and in many other ways done extraordinarily well. And what worries me about Donald Trump is because he doesn't see it that way. He is beginning to pull a lot of strings on the sweater. And over the course of coming months, years, and decades, I believe he is setting in motion trends and forces that will leave the United States and the world much worse off. Hey, wouldn't you like to buy a world of Coke right now? It sure as hell needs one. North Korea's saber-rattling, Iran's protests, Venezuela failing state, and mutually assured Twitter destruction out of Washington, D.C. Is anyone in charge? Let's get a veteran diplomat on the line. Stay with us. Full disclosure made possible by the support of Elwood Thompson, the best market in Virginia, Breakfast Bar, Indian Wednesdays, wine and music at the Beat Cafe, and don't even get me started on the vegan biscuits. Visit them at the top of Carytown RVA and at elwoodthompson.com. And buy Health Warrior Superfoods, the 100-calorie snack made with real ingredients like chia that help keep you full and only 4 to 5 grams of sugar. I urge you to try the Caramel Sea Salt Chia Bar. If that's not your thing, then you also must try the Pumpkin Seed Bar. Just pumpkin seeds, honey, and spices. This bar has our simplest ingredient list yet. Have one of these with a cold brew coffee in the morning and you will be ready to go. Visit them at healthwarrior.com. Hassle-free returns on all orders and free shipping on orders, $35 and up. Joining me from Manhattan, Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations. A veteran diplomat, Dr. Haas was an advisor to State Secretary Colin Powell. He was special assistant to President George H.W. Bush and a senior director on the staff of the National Security Council. He's also served in the Defense Department and is author of A World in Disarray, now available in paperback. How are you, sir? Cold, but otherwise good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you I, as well. I do want to start by reading um, a, a little blurb, a little bit from the afterwards of the paperback edition, um, A World in Disarray. You say, abdication describes U.S. foreign policy all the same, as the U.S. is no longer taking the lead in maintaining alliances or in building regional and global institutions. It is abdication from what has been a position of leadership in developing the rules and arrangements at the heart of any world order. Um, I, I want to get a sense for kind of the inception of this book when you first had the idea for it and the, and the U-turns you had to take, I think, in the year since um, Donald Trump raised his right hand and he was inaugurated. Well, the book probably had its origins three or so years ago. I had to give some lectures at uh, the University of Cambridge across the Atlantic. And I basically tried to give you know, a series of talks about explaining what was going on in the world uh, this is essentially a quarter of a century after the end of the Cold War, and, and I had a big question. I was trying to figure out why things weren't better, even though the principal driver of a lot of the last few hundred years of history was mercifully absent, which was great power conflict or even serious great power rivalry. And I was trying to explain, why, again, why things weren't better, and I came across all sorts of things from the fact that post-World War II institutions had increasingly lost some of their relevance, all sorts of new challenges posed by globalization. Uh, in some cases, uh, you know, capacity had spread into all sorts of hands from groups like ISIS or you know, states like North Korea or in Iran. We had made things worse, we the United States, and what we did in Iraq or what we maybe didn't do under Barack Obama in the Middle East. So you know, that was the back. that's why I came up with this idea of a world in, in disarray. Mm -hmm. book came out about a year ago in January of 17, 
And what I've just published, as you said, is a, a paperback which looks at the last year. And Donald Trump has emerged as a serious outlier. He is a He's the most radically different president when it comes to foreign policy of any president since Harry Truman. And, you know, I thought of you. I thought of you when I read this in The (laughs) New Yorker. Returning from vacation, Donald Trump spent much of his first day back in the White House, January 2nd, on Twitter, lambasting foreign governments. In 24 hours, he assailed Iran's crackdown on street protests, denounced Pakistan, and threatened to pull aid from Palestinians for failing to show, quote, appreciation or respect, close quote. But he gained the most attention around dinnertime when he threatened a nuclear holocaust in North Korea. He tweeted, and we know he loves Twitter, will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I too have a nuclear button, but it is much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works, uh, close quote. And I'm thinking, gosh, if Stanley Kubrick were still alive, but uh, Richard Haas is alive, and I want to know what was going on in your head when you saw that. Yeah, every once in a while, you know, I think back to when I was a student, and I wasn't prepared for this. It's not only that Twitter didn't exist, but you know the kind of stuff we were studying seems uh, arcane or rarefied compared to uh, this sort of uh, bare-fisted approach to the world. And it's again, this is you know, so, it a different way. Every American president, even people as different as Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama, if I can use a sports analogy here, they were kind of operating between the 40-yard lines. What they had in common was far greater than what they didn't. Here comes Donald Trump. He is radically different. He's in the end zone. He doesn't believe that much of what he inherited is worth it. Indeed, he actually believes that much of what he has inherited in the way of our foreign policy and in the way of international institutions is bad for the United States. So he, he is, he's not simply the 45th president. He is something fundamentally different. So of all of this, which parts of it keep you up at night? I mean, it's funny while it's funny, and we can observe this spectacle as, as kind of people in the cheap seats on Twitter. But suppose something goes horribly awry. Suppose somebody senses a weakness and decides to, you know, annex a country in Europe. Suppose somebody decides to be more aggressive uh, in terms of uh, throwing its weight around in the ocean and and territorially around North Korea. What provokes this regime here in Washington into kind of becoming serious and and truly fighting back? The two things that keep me up at night in, in the short run. Uh, one's North Korea and the, the kinds of you know, contingencies, crises, wars that could result out of that. The other is something in the Middle East, uh, and probably involving Iran, and the U.S. could get drawn into something involving Saudi Arabia and Iran, or, or more directly. Over the long term, what keeps me up at night is, how do I put this? I don't mean to sound self-whatever, but people like me, I'm, I'm, I'm a traditional foreign policy hand. I've been working on these issues for four decades. I actually think what the United States has built up over the last seven decades has been really good for this country. It's also been good for a lot of the world. We have, you know, economically and in many other ways, done extraordinarily well. And what worries me about Donald Trump is because he doesn't see it that way. He is beginning to pull a lot of strings on the sweater. And over, over the course of coming months, years, and decades, I believe he is setting in motion trends and forces that will leave the United States and the world much worse off. So I've got that long-term sense of what's going wrong strategically. But if you're asking me about the next year, yes, what I'm worried about is North Korea and Iran. But from that longer-term perspective, there are so many uh, uh, watchers in the political community and the, the, the foreign policy community who think that this is just an, a one-term aberration, that he won by a, almost a you know statistical fluke, a fluke of the Electoral College, that it wasn't a mandate that he's bound to take uh, take it on the chin in the midterm elections and, and 
some sort of sanity will prevail again in 2020, assuming it doesn't happen again. And I wonder if uh, foreign leaders are looking at it the same way. Don't get used to this kind of complacency or this uh, theater because it's just a one-off thing. Based on my conversations, not quite. If it could happen once, how do they know it won't happen again? To what extent might Trumpism, a degree of it, persist, even without the persona of Donald Trump? There's always the possibility he does get elected to, uh, to, second, to a second term. And also, the next three years is a long time. You don't know, I don't know, if there, if there won't be a war involving the United States and Korea or something involving Iran or who knows what else. The world that he's going to hand off to 46 could be an extraordinarily different world. Dr. Haas, I'm fascinated by this new, um, you know, triangular friendship, so to speak, between the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. Um, maybe it's been overrated. You're hearing that, you know, enemy of mine enemy, and everything is coagulating, congealing around this enmity toward Iran and the Ayatollahs and the Shiite sphere of influence, which has expanded vastly um, uh, over 15 years, if you think about um, Baghdad, it's... Uh, you know, ideological proximity now to Tehran and, and Syria, what with the Iranians helping Bashar al-Assad. Uh, do you think that that is, uh, you know, a, a real kind of like almost like a World War One uh, balance of power transfer, something that's happened there? I mean, I'm, I'm shocked, for example, the extent to which the reaction toward the Jerusalem embassy decision has been not as vociferous as I'd imagine across the Arab street. I think you're onto something, Robin, but I think it's dangerous in taking it too far. You're right. The reaction to the Jerusalem embassy move by the Trump administration was pretty muted. There was not massive violence in the streets uh, and, and the rest. That said, the Saudi government has felt forced to be quite critical of it. I actually think this will be bad for the Trump administration. I saw there was no, I thought there was no upside, uh, a lot of potential downside. I think it actually makes it more difficult for what you just described coming about, something of a U.S.-Saudi coalition with Israel that would isolate Iran. I actually think it makes it much more difficult for the Saudis to move closer to Israel and the uh, and the United States. What of that thing that we were always told that um, the right in Israel and, and Likud like to inveigh against this idea that Jerusalem would not be recognized, but they didn't actually want Jerusalem ultimately recognized. They just like having it as a rhetorical arrow in the quiver. But now that it happened, it kind of complicated matters, both for, you know, Jerusalem and Washington. Yeah, the Jerusalem was always meant to be the caboose on the peace train. Everything else would be resolved, and then you'd deal with Jerusalem and probably some, some version of shared sovereignty over parts of the holy places, and both the Palestinian state and, and Israel would somehow find a way to claim it as a capital. And even what we mean by it or Jerusalem is unclear, because it all depends upon where you draw the municipal boundaries, so it gives you a lot of wiggle room. But what the administration and this Israeli government have done is essentially moved it to the fore before we're ready for it. And, uh, you know, look, the, the prospects for peace in the Middle East were close to nil before this happened, and now they're even closer to nil. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Dr. Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, author of A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order. It's now in paperback, published last year by Penguin Press. Um, surely, Dr. Haas, you've been getting inundated with calls about Iran. It seems to happen almost every 10 years. People forgot about the students protesting in 1999 and that crackdown. 2009 was really vivid, um, you know, in the first six months of the Obama administration and, and that crackdown on very huge protests in, in places like Tehran and, and 
you know, tertiary cities in Iran. What do you make of this one? There doesn't seem to be a single voice or a single grievance behind it. And, and certainly there have been days where you hear more about pro-government protests and other days where, where people are coming in and ascribing, well, th- there isn't much significance to it. It's pretty interesting, actually. Unlike 2009, this is in some ways leaderless. It's from the bottom up, not from the top down. It's not Tehran-centric. It really is much more national. It's not just intellectuals and, and students uh, rallying around certain candidates. Uh, it's more people of working class, and it seems to be rallying as much around the price of eggs as anything else. I think there was a sense of uh, rising expectations that with the nuclear agreement and the reduction in sanctions, uh, people would be much better off in Iran, and it hasn't happened. Some people are blaming all the money they're spending on their foreign uh, adventurism. And I think the regime has been caught uh, what's flat-footed or on its back foot. Because this is something more fundamental, it's harder to know how to respond to it. And I think what you're seeing is a kind of hesitancy. My hunch is sooner or later either the the protests will peter out or the regime will crack down uh, as hard as they, they need to to keep order. But I think it shows that they've got a real problem on their hands. And the, Iran's future will not be in any way as uh, confident or as obvious as, a, as its recent past. But here's what I don't understand. After uh, the Obama administration opted not to enforce the, the kind of the thick red line on Syria, what options, other than kind of moral suasion or rhetorical options, does Washington have? I mean, if, if suppose a crackdown does escalate, the IRGC is brought in, you see blood on the streets, you see tear gas, you see uh, gunships. Uh, the United States, effectively, you saw with the inaugural address, Trump has not telegraphed any interest in intervening in these things. And in fact, he's invaded against, uh, you know, Bush 43 for the, the misadventure in Iraq. I don't understand kind of what the United States has anymore. I see Bill Crystal tweeting. I see, I see John Bolton and the like kind of saying that we need to have a more muscular foreign policy. But what do we have? Well, in the case of Iran, what it would probably mean is the reintroduction of some sanctions not linked to the nuclear issue, but linked to human rights. And ideally, any new sanctions would not just be American sanctions, but would, but would be supported by, by the Europeans. Is it going to be enough to bring about fundamental political change there? No. I think that's a fact of life. Iran is a, a powerful country. It's got a real economy. It's a real society. So I think there's limits to what outsiders uh, could do. We could probably also make it a little bit harder for, uh, for firms to provide the government with certain technologies that are making it easier for them to crack down on their own uh, opposition. We could make sure more information was available to the Iranian people about how much their regime is spending on their foreign adventures. But if you, but do we have the capacity to control events? The short answer is no. I'm actually worried that if we're not careful, we're going to turn this into a U.S.-European problem because we're on such a different page about how to respond to events there. Yeah, that, that unpack that for me. I mean, you saw that with the sanctions uh, relief regime there, that the Europeans largely want to follow through with this, that it's been less taboo for the French and the Germans and the Swiss uh, to trade with Iran. Um, they've been <laughs> kind of less puritanical about this over the past three decades. I don't know to what mood are they in to kind of tighten up this regime again, um, uh, you know, if the United States doesn't have other levers to pull. The short answer, Robin, is they're not, and they have an argument. Iran is not acting uh, in violation of the nuclear agreement. And the administration may not like the nuclear agreement, and I think there's some good grounds for criticism, but it's the agreement they inherited, and there's not a basis for breaking out of it or introducing new sanctions based on it. I think the only area that could be a basis for getting tougher with Iran would be if Iran, again, cracks down 
on its people, there's nothing that precludes new sanctions against Iran if there are, again, massive human rights violations or if Iran were to do some terrorism. So yeah, I think if the administration's smart, we'll see if they are, they will not introduce the nuclear issue into this, which would actually cause a lot of Iranians to rally around the regime, alienate the Europeans. They'll just keep the, the nuclear issue quiet, and they'll keep the focus on what's going on in the streets of Tehran and other cities. I just don't know if this administration has the discipline to do that. You know, and, and you write in your forward say, the fact is, though, that there's no alternative great power willing and able to step in and assume what has been the U.S. role. China is often suggested, but its leadership is focused mostly on consolidating domestic order and maintaining artificially high rates of economic growth, lest there be popular unrest. Uh, it does make you wonder, you know, I, I, I see Angela Merkel and, and the leader of Canada and other people in the kind of the vacuum left by Trump kind of coming together and saying that we can't depend on this old ally, at least in the, in the short term. This is a man who wants to zag while the rest of us want to zig. Um, have, I've, have you been impressed that Western Europe has mostly filled that vacuum of leadership? No, but I think their mentality is just that, that for as long as Trump is president, they they look at this United States and say, we don't recognize it. They look at this United States and say, clearly Washington's not prepared to play its traditional role. But Europe can't fill our shoes. Uh, they don't have the capacity economically or militarily. Merkel doesn't even have a government. Macron is under tremendous pressure to try to reform the French uh, economy to reduce the massive public sector there. Look, Europe has its hands full dealing with Brexit and essentially dealing with European reform. So there are some things the Europeans can do on climate change uh, or other issues. But by and large, Europe is not in a position to be a major world power. Dr. Haas, what happened to that coterie of kind of, you know, um, elders from the Reagan and, and Bush 41 administration? That, I mean, I know they've grown older and, and retired like Brent Scowcroft and the like and, and Jim Baker. There were people that were far more pragmatic and less reflexive kind of, you know, jingoistically on foreign affairs than where you've seen some of the Republican Party head under Trump. Um, Have these voices completely been snuffed out of this administration? Is there still kind of a channel for them to advise people like Mattis or the national security apparatus? Well, I'm sort of the next generation of people of that mindset. I was, out of all the recent presidents, I was closest to 41. Brent Scowcroft was my immediate boss and people like him, uh, Jim Baker, and the rest. But they're, they're all in their, essentially in their 90s or close to it, 41 as well into his, his 90s. Kissinger, who served earlier, kind of the more traditional people, is in his mid-90s. Brzezinski died. So that generation has largely passed from the day-to-day scene. People like me, what you might call Republican traditionalists, well, first of all, we're, we're, you're going to see us on postage stamps soon because we're an endangered <laughs> species. Uh, and people, and you don't see us in this administration. And indeed, in, in many cases, we, we weren't even in the last Bush administration. 43's administration were, quote-unquote, neocons, and people more to that approach uh, had a more prominent uh, role. No, I think traditional American foreign policy, the people who believe in institutions, believe in alliances, believe in American leadership, are not don't see promoting democracy as the centerpiece of American foreign policy. Uh, people close to what you might call Nixon, Ford, George Bush, the father of foreign policy, for the most part, I think uh, they're in the minority now. I'm sorry to say, because I'm one of them. Who is the who is the voice of reason? I mean, if everybody's talking about the Michael Wolff book right now, and if you don't even buy, uh, you know, a minority of what he wrote in it, this this piece, fire, you know, the book Fire and Fury. But if it leads you to at least buy into this idea that you have an an uncurious person 
at the helm of the most powerful position in the world. Are there adults around him who at least he can defer to on, on foreign policy or something were to happen who are more mindful of that button? I think the person who has the most respect of all the people there is, you mentioned it before, the Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis. I think more, but he's got his hands full running the Pentagon with U.S. forces involved in so many places around the world. Plus, he's, he's in the Pentagon. And that's a, that's a big mile, if you will, between the Pentagon and the Oval Office. The people who are closer to the president, I would say, don't have that kind of standing. The Secretary of State is new to foreign policy, is new to governing, is preoccupied for reasons that baffle me with reorganizing his department while the world's unraveling. So the idea that the people around the president were going to somehow rein him in and, and shape American foreign policy to a large degree is simply not proven out. I just think it's uh, there's two there's two things that haven't happened. One is the idea that this president would mellow, to use the word you always heard, pivot. That hasn't happened. And the second thing that hasn't happened is that the people around him were going to control him. Uh, both of those ideas just just haven't you know, come come to pass. There's always been this perceived, you know, tension between, uh, you know, defense and, and State Department or the CIA and, and, you know, this this power, this this struggle to kind of get the air of the presidency. And there's a perception that state under Tillerson has been really weakened, both from a staffing perspective and a, a morale perspective. Um, I, you know, wh- how surprising was it that he appointed the CEO of Exxon? Uh, to this position. On the one hand, you could say that he practically ran a multinational. Uh, He ran a nation in all of these negotiations. He knew Vladimir Putin. He knew um, Gulf Sheikhs. But on the other hand, you've seen very little follow through in terms of the diplomatic apparatus of this administration. To me, what was surprising wasn't so much that he chose a CEO. We've had other CEOs and you had someone like McNamara, obviously chosen by Kennedy to come in uh, and be Secretary of Defense. So we've had a, a history of CEOs every now and then taking a, a cabinet position. What's, what's surprising to me is, to, is the difficulties Tillerson has had in getting a handle on the job, and I think a lot of those were self-created. I think he just really misunderstood what his, what his job needed to be. And I think it's also particularly hard dealing with this president and this White House. You know, no one else had to deal historically with the president who tweeted. Tweets are White House statements, except in this case, nobody's clearing on them. The president's just, just doing them. No one else had a, a son-in-law down the hall, who the president was sometimes telling foreign leaders to get in touch with directly rather than the uh, secretary uh, of state. So this is an extre- you know, this is a diff- different and difficult uh, situation for anyone to operate in. Mm. Uh, what's, your, what's your take on the whole Steve Bannon thing to the extent that he had this fleeting experience uh, as a somewhat, you know, as a person with access to National Security Council to uh, the presidency and that, that that kind of went up in flames a year into the Trump presidency? Yeah, but the fact that he had that access to me was quite stunning, that he had it for as long as he had. And second of all, if you read, say, the national security document that came out a couple of weeks ago, the language on China is incredibly rough. China is treated no better than Russia, and the language sounds like pure Bannon. China uh, it basically assumes that the United States and China are and will be at loggerheads. And the 21st century is going to be something of a struggle between these two countries. So essentially jettisoned is the idea that there might be a significant cooperative dimension to U.S.-Chinese relations, or that China can be made or encouraged to behave as a kind of traditional great power inside the system rather than outside it. So Bannonism 
has actually had tremendous uh, sway. He doesn't have to be there. But look at our policy on immigration. That's Bannon. Our policy on trade is pure Bannon. Our policy on China could increasingly become what he wants, particularly if we end up in something of a trade war this year. So actually, he ought to be feeling pretty good. From what I can see, he's had more impact on Trump's foreign policy than anybody else. Mm. Which theaters in foreign policy, which nations or, or episodes right now do you think are getting most short shrifted under this administration? It's a good question. I worry most about Europe. I think that's probably been the, even though Europe itself is doing okay economically and politically, U.S.-European relations are at something of a, a nadir under this administration. Latin America and Africa are getting no attention. Uh, look at what's going on in Venezuela or other things. Global issues uh, from climate change to how to regulate cyberspace, all the, the, the things at the global level, uh, migration issues, are just getting ignored by this administration. The only two parts of the world that are getting regular focus are Asia, but, but be it China or North Korea, or uh, the Middle East. There's one stat that I like to throw at guests sometimes when we talk about foreign policy because I still shake my head at it like the Aflac duck. Um, it came out in 2015 that China used more cement in three years than the United States did in the entire 20th century. And mind you that this was an intensely centrally planned three years coming out of the worst of the financial crisis. So they needed to build. They needed roads, even if the roads were to nowhere. They needed buildings. They needed highways. I think about China and I step back from this. I mean, you compare it to 100 years of the United States, the interstate highway system, the TVA, everything that was built across this huge swath of land. And when I look at stock markets at a record, uh, emerging markets kind of getting their groove back, I wonder how many of these smaller economies, the Brazils, the Perus, the uh, Malaysias, the um, gosh, you name it, uh, any, anybody in sub-Saharan Africa that's been growing ahead of trend is so hardwired to what China has going on and how much of a hazard that is to your eyes that China has a hard fall. To make sure I understand you. I mean, China is obviously you know, exerting a bigger economic footprint. Their infrastructure projects around the world are, are significant, this whole Belt and Road Initiative and so forth. On the other hand, you're, you're going to see more and more pushback against China because China's not doing this out of the, the goodness of their heart. There's an imperial quality to this. There's an economic uh, nationalist quality. But what I'm saying is we have, not had a, we have not had a Chinese hard landing in this simulation across the world to kind of go on. I remember the emerging market crises of the late 90s. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, uh, no yeah, one, I, I you know, everybody just assumes that China can keep growing and can kind of keep feeding these spheres of influence and, and other countries that provide China with raw materials would be okay. Look, you're actually talking then to someone who's one of the probably the minority who doesn't think that China keeps going the way it is. I don't think China's future is linear. By the way, I don't think Xi Jinping does either. One of the reasons I believe he's cracking down as hard as he is and concentrating so much power in his own hands is that he is worried that there's going to be days of reckoning, that there's going to be big economic speed bumps or worse, and he needs to maintain political control to, to get through them. And I think he's, I guess it's the Chinese equivalent of them battening down the hatches because there's going to be economic storms to come. Bubbles are going to burst. Uh, you've got tremendous inequality at home. You've got corruption. You've got environmental problems. You've got demographic problems. You've got a state sector that's that's bloated, and something's got to give. And China wants all the benefits of being an open uh, open economy without being an open economy. It's very hard to have your cake and eat it. So I, I don't think China has a, a smooth, linear future. And it's one of the areas that I think markets and, in general, people, observers, most underestimate is the, the potential for real uh, interesting moments, like, almost like what we're seeing in Iran. Nobody predicted that two weeks ago. Look at where we are. Well, 
I wouldn't be shocked if at some point you had the equivalent in China. Well, you know, I'm thinking back to 1989, and this is more than a quarter century ago, but there was a headline uh, around Christmas that um, a secret diplomatic cable from then British ambassador to China in 1989 revealed that the, the Chinese army may have cracked down and killed at least 10,000 people in the Tiananmen massacre, which is multiples more what kind of the world had imagined back then. I wonder, you know, to the extent that you were involved with the Bush 41 administration, to the extent you you think back to that episode and what Bush might have done differently and how history may have unfolded differently, because China did come out of that with a kind of a, a, a compromise of sorts to its people that you can pursue more economic freedoms and wealth formation and everything as long as you pull away from politics will give you, uh, you know, pressure vent of sorts. But looking back at this, realizing that it really changed the course of history, that the United States or other players did not act more forcefully. Well, I think Bush made the decision, and I think it was essentially right, I was there at the time, that there was nothing we could do that would fundamentally affect things. It was a largely localized protest. The regime was going to do whatever it had to to crush it. And that no matter what the United States said or did, it wouldn't make a material difference other than to alienate China if that's what, if we went far enough. So I think Bush was playing for the long game, said the Chinese are going to have to find their own way, find their own balance between what's the role of government, what's the role of individual liberty, what's the, how does the economy get organized, and we'll try to work out a, a good post-Cold War relationship uh, with this uh, with this leadership. So he was playing the, the long game given all the things we had at stake over time and his own sense, again, I think it's realistic, that there wasn't much we could do to influence what happened inside China. I just say that more generally, Robin. I think there's real limits to the amount of uh, engineering or influence the United States can, can exert on the, the DNA politically of other countries. And when we've gotten really ambitious, such as in Iraq sure. uh, in 2000... But there used to be a check on things like this. I mean, in the period after World War II, the reason that you know you, you, can, you come together for things like NATO or the United Nations is that multilateralism is supposed to be a check on this. And I think about the United Nations right now, that yesterday I see it's only now the Security Council is going to potentially take up the Iran protests. It seems like it, it seems like there is no kind of uh, uh, really credible check on abuses like this. And, and even after China, we talk about Bosnia, we talk about Rwanda, whether things like protest crackdowns border on outright genocide. It seems like um, the freedom-loving world is, is increasingly powerless to do anything about it. Well, a couple of things. First, one of the most overused phrases in, in the world is the phrase, you know, world community or international community. And the deep, dark secret is there isn't one or there isn't much of one. Second of all, there's nothing harder than to influence the internal workings of other societies, just given factors of culture and, uh, and politics and the like. There is no consensus. Most countries would say, hey, we're sovereign. Keep your mitts off us. This is something that you don't have the right to interfere. And maybe when it gets as extreme as genocide, but not until then, and even when it gets to be genocide, often then people still want to keep us out or we may not have the appetite to go in. So, you know, here we are, we're about to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Mr. Wilson's, you know, 14 points. But, the, again, the world is, uh, if anything, if there was a barometer that was measuring the state of human rights and democracy, uh, the needle would have moved in the wrong direction over the last couple of years. Dr. Haas, close us out. What should we be reading more on? What should we be focusing on more? I mean, certainly there's no shortage of, of theater and distractions if you think about best-selling book coming in and talking about all the gossip in the White House. If, you know, one minute Trump's tweeting with uh, the uh, the head of North Korea and it's it's people are talking about nuclear holocaust. The next minute there's this focus on Iran and 
maybe the Pakistan thing comes out of left field to start the year. Is there an area that you wish uh, Americans were kind of more honed in on? I wish Americans understood two things a bit more. One is civics, the the DNA of their the, our own system. I just worry that too many young people are graduating from high school or college and have never read the Federalist Papers and never read de Tocqueville or probably never read the Constitution, don't understand the, the values and political participation and what's at stake and uh, the value and necessity of compromise. So I, I worry that we, we, we've, grown, we've grown distant from our own political uh, heritage. And then secondly, I don't think, similar to that, we're teaching anything about the world. So too many Americans are what I would call globally illiterate. Uh, they just don't understand the connection between what goes on out there and what goes on here, and it makes them very vulnerable to bogus arguments. So we have now an administration, for example, that's blaming the disappearance of jobs on things like uh, immigration and trade, when in fact it's much more because of innovation and technology. But unless people are, are more grounded in some of the subjects, of the, I've read some of the history, I just worry that we're, we're vulnerable and our democracy won't function anywhere near as well as, as it needs to. Dr. Richard Haas, veteran diplomat, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, author of A World in Disarray, now available in paperback. I cannot thank you enough, sir. Oh, thanks going the other direction. Happy New Year. You too. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. You can catch us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. On Twitter, we're at FullDRadio and on Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. Please, please, please check in with us weekly. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week.